I'd like to uh, spend about 15 minutes uh, uh, talking to Professor Meenakshi about her current research and an upcoming book. And after that, we will start a Q&A session. I'd like to mention that uh, uh, we have our other contemporary greats like uh, Sri Michelle Danino, Conrad Elst, Srinivasan Kalyan Ramanji also uh, on the webinar today. My namaste to them. Uh, in fact, uh, Michelle Daninoji just uh, sent a message which I'd like to read out. He says, I would just like to record here my deep appreciation and admiration for Meenakshi's work, which I have been privileged to follow for some two decades of her steadfastness in um, isolation, her intellectual integrity and courage, her meticulous research and invariably dignified expression. She has done incredible service to Indian history. There is no level playing field in academics. So it was to be expected that her work would be met with a wall of silence. But in the long term, it hardly matters. Her work will outlive that of those to whom we may give the COVIDly correct label of sanitizers. <laughs> we need honest scholarship, and it is rarer than ever. Meenakshi's rich legacy is assured and far from over. Uh, thank you, uh, Michelle, for this uh, message. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I, in fact, uh, I myself, you know, when I started developing an interest in, you know, uh, uh, reading more about Indian history and when I was looking for books, I suddenly realized the absolute lack of, you know, any serious books other than the initial days of maybe 1940s and 50s, you know, when there was some amount of work that was done, hardly any uh, work available at all. And uh, uh, when even our children's books today, if you see, you know, after the uh, the prehistorical uh, description from literature, you know, like the Aryan invasion, so-called, you know, Aryan invasion, which never happened, or the Harappan civilization, all the way to the uh, the first uh, century BC or the second century BC, there's absolutely a complete blank of what exactly has happened. There is no clarity. It's as if almost that after the Harappan civilization, the whole subcontinent has been depeopled. You know, that's that there's nobody around, that nothing has happened. There's hardly any mention of any detail in our children's books, and there's hardly any books that are available which give credible information about the history of our people during this era. And uh, even some very important subjects, uh, like, uh, for example, what is the origin of temple building in India? What is the origin of you know, image uh, worship in India? On these subjects as well, there's hardly anything uh, that is written. In fact, uh, the leftist uh, historians have successfully completely ignored and you know, been silent, you know, no matter how much they would have wanted to probably comment on. Uh, you know, the re most recent historians like Sita Ram Goel and even Conrad Elst and, you know, uh, some of the others. But uh, because of some of Meenakshiji's work, you know, they could not uh, stay away. For example, her NCERT CBSC textbook that she has written, Middle in India. So they had to comment on it. They had to criticize it, right? And they had to, in fact, I have seen some of the criticisms where they acknowledge uh, you know, that, yes, yeah, this is good work, you know, but uh, these are the problems, you know, <laughs> and they come up with all kinds of a very silly uh, criticisms in terms of, for example, this name should be spelled with an I, but she has spelled it without an I, you know, this is a kind of a criticism. They have her uh, Meenakshi's Medieval India, you know, CBSC textbook. And of course, her uh, review of uh, Romila Thapar Somanath has also, uh, you know, 
really affected them quite a bit and i've seen them you know respond to it uh, uh, quite a bit as well uh, i'd like to now um, uh, quickly uh, i have several questions myself and probably i'll ask them after uh, this brief discussion on uh, uh, meenakshi ji's current work so i had a, a small telephone call with meenakshi ji to talk to her about you know what could be a good thing to discuss here and uh, she explained to me that uh, uh, her current research is in two areas uh, one is uh, and both of them are early indian history uh, the first topic that you know she is uh, uh, that currently occupies her research is the centrality of image worship uh, for indians and the earliest evidence that is available for image worship in india uh, and she has sent me a paper you know which talks about uh, vasudeva uh um uh sorry uh, krishna's uh, 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 worship um and uh, she is also currently you know working on um, um fo- foreign invaders and foreign visitors whether it is indo greeks or uh, shakas or kushans you know coming into northwestern india pre islam right what was the attitude of indians towards them who were called mlechas and who were not called mlechas right what was the status of the rulers of indians you know who have come uh, from outside and how did the law make law givers of india you know deal with the society and the polity in those uh, days you know specifically for example um, what alberuni from 11th century you know has written about uh, the specific issue of what indians attitude was towards you know such uh, people so these are the two uh, areas that meenakshi ji mentioned um, so meenakshi ji about the earliest uh, image worship you know this particular research area that you mentioned um so you mentioned in your paper uh, that there is uh, actual evidence uh, from i think literary evidence from 3rd to 4th century bce and uh, uh, also archaeological evidence from 1st to 2nd century bce um uh, and i i don't know i have heard that uh, the earliest standing temple that we have today is probably from 5th uh, century ad right and uh, um i have also seen references to you know temples for example in works like arthashastra you know which talks about devalayas to be built in the yes. middle of uh, durgas yes. and forts yes. and uh, i don't know whether you will agree with me or not but if you read uh, uh, ramayana um you know when the scene that is being described where you know sita and rama are going uh, on the river you know uh, um uh you know after the begin of uh, uh, their uh, uh, stay away from ayodhya uh, there's a description of you know devalayas you know on both sides of uh, uh, the river you know on the banks so is temple building you know how, obviously is related to image worship as well and probably there is more to image worship than temples as well you know both ways to, uh, to it but uh, uh, ramayana is a much older work you know do you think uh, there were temples at that time as well you know i'd like to hear more about you more about you know uh, m- more from you about you know this particular area of your research the uh, the vedic period uh in the rigveda there is no reference to image worship because in the vedic period the offerings that were made to god were through the sacrificial fire so sacrifice was the most important and agni was the medium by which you sent your 
offerings to God. But in the Upanishads, we have for the first time mention of the word bhakti. And bhakti is devotion to your personal God. And scholars have traced the beginning of image worship to bhakti. Now, the earliest evidence that we have, actually, literary evidence is Panini. Panini mentions worship, but he does not specify the deities who are under worship. But he uses certain terms. And Patanjali, who comments on Panini's work, says that Panini, when he's talking about this, when he's talking about Vasudev, he means not Vasudev who was the Kshatriya, but Vasudev who's the worshipful one, the adorable one. So from the time of Panini, we have references to images and image worship. After that, it is very easy to document. The first epigraphic evidence that we have is provided by a Greek ambassador to an Indian court. Now this Greek ambassador to the court of an Indian prince in the second century before common era, he comes to India and he erects a column, the Garud, which is called the Garud Dhwaj, in honor of Vasudev, the god of gods. Vasudev, we know, is Krishna. So that, that column is still standing. The inscription on that column is standing. That inscription is important because it is the first surviving epigraphic evidence which attests to worship of image. And just one more thing I want to say about this inscription. This inscription is in two parts. The verse, part two, has a verse which is exact replica of a verse in this three parv of the Mahabharata, which means that this Greek ambassador coming from Takshila was aware of the Mahabharata before he came to India. And the Mahabharata itself says that Vyas ordered that the Mahabharata should be first recited in Takshila. So the Mahabharata is itself saying it was first recited in Takshila and all the people who were assembled at that gathering heard it and took it to their various parts. And Panini lived in a place very near Takshila. So it all ties up. Now you talked about temples. In the 1960s, Indian archaeologists excavated near this Vesgar inscription of Elodorus. It's called the Elodorus inscription. They excavated around it in the 1960s. And they found evidence of a structure, a sacred structure that was uh, destroyed by floods or something uh, soon after it was constructed and a stone structure created at that site. And the remnants of that stone structure, which is like a temple, not a grand temple, but a small temple, 
of the before common era are there for us to see so this is before common era small structures that we can call temples we have at besnagar and then we have at a place called nagri in rajasthan in nagri also we are fortunate that we have found a partial inscription which says that this uh, is being created for vasudev and sankarshan whom we know is vasudev's brother there also the plan of the temple survives it's a small plan but it is very much there and then these are the two earliest where the plan of the temple is surviving both of before common era they're separated from each other by about 30 40 years only which means that temple construction i'm not talking about grand temples but modest small structures were there before the common era and in mathura the most important findings are from mathura early common era there also we have been fortunate to find an inscription which says that this temple with this arch with this beam with this bracket is being created in honor of vasudev so the inscription has been found but what is most surprising about mathura near the inscription excavations were done and the inscription says that it is in honor of the five vrishni heroes the five vrishni is the clan to which krishna belonged and the five vrishni heroes were the immediate relatives of his his brother his son grandson etc so this inscription says it is for the five vrishni heroes and in 1911 when excavations were done near this site of where the inscription was found two male torsos were found now those two male torsos were definitely belonging to this temple they were we cannot say whether they were krishna or sankarshan because the top and the bottom part is missing only the torso is there but they are definitely vrishni heroes and then sometime later the pedestal of a female was found only the legs and the pedestal was found and from that the scholars have concluded that it belonged to the sister of balram and krishna so this is early evidence that we have of temple construction and worship of vasudev krishna um i have uh, seen some writings you know which talk about uh, the fact that even probably during the vedic uh, age if one can call it that that they were probably temporary structures which were built uh, and then probably uh, you know they are taken away so there was some sort of an image worship during that time as well uh, i'm not sure um, uh, but if you see for example uh, the representation per se if you take you know as a concept uh, in the uh, harappan uh, one of the uh, an icons you know, uh, that was found it clearly shows a representation of shiva right as a you know, pashupati so um there may have been maybe not permanent structures but maybe places of worship made out of wood uh, and perishable material like that uh, see as far as that pashupati seal is concerned john marshall who wrote the most uh, authoritative work on mohenjo daro 
he called it proto shiva so he was very clear then uh, bb lal he and sr rao they have found evidences of fire altars and according to some archaeologist the great bath at mohenjodaro was clearly associated with some form of worship because it was built in such a way that you uh, had to circumambulate around it you could not walk on it with your you know you had to walk barefoot around it so they presume that now there is another archaeologist i want to uh, mention that is rp chanda rp chanda is now uh, you know not known his name is not known to uh, many people but of course he is a respected person in academic circles uh, he was the first person to study that priest king that image that you mentioned from mohenjodaro and he said that this image is a person with certain characteristics what are those characteristics stiff head neck and chest and eyes half closed eyes in meditation pose looking at the tip of the nose and he said this posture is not found in the art of any other country in the world but he said it is a distinct characteristic of indian images if you see the image of the buddha or jains or uh, you know the hindu deities many of them are in this contemplative pose whether that priest king we don't know whether he was worshiped in a temple it's not possible to answer but the things that he represents don't die and are manifested 3 century 3 millennium later when indian art begins in mathura so found in indus valley and revived in mathura where image uh, making begins in the common era what is your opinion on uh, the frequent uh, uh, you know assertion that we see that uh, image worship has actually started in hindus from jains Uh, do you uh, think there is any substance in that uh, it's very difficult to answer this question uh, but i'll just give you one or two uh, examples you know uh, at uh, indus valley uh, certain uh, statues have been found in that stiff posture which is the characteristic of jain tirthankar who these people were nobody can answer but then that same posture that is the stiff direct posture of jain images now images begin in mathura and they are almost at the same period of jains buddhist and hindu images and we find that this community of artisans and craftsmen they were available to all the three faiths and there's hardly a difference of 20 30 years between the earliest buddha image and the earliest hindu image so we cannot say which came first because if tomorrow is an excavation which reveals something else but we can say they are almost at the same period and in the same region and crafted by the same artisans artisans 
thank you very much ma'am i'd like to can you can i request you to quickly say a few words about your other area of research uh, which you mentioned okay, to me okay. on okay actually there are two areas of research the first that i'm mentioning is part of this study which we have discussed and that is that you know uh, india uh, in this period that is early india it was invaded before common era by the persians the greeks the shakas the kushans the huns among others so we have a very strong literary tradition during this period so what does the literary and these rulers they ruled over significant parts of northwestern india so what does the literary tradition say about them so manu manu says that there are actually only four castes in the world and the rest are derived from them so according to this the others are the offspring of mixed marriages or they have people have become out uh, shudras or lower level because they were they had abandoned their sacred duties sacred obligations or not kept in touch with brahmins so he is not distinguishing between uh you know people who are part of this society and outsiders outsiders means he doesn't know of the whole world but people who are in the vicinity on the borders so he says there are only four castes the reds are their offspring offspring because either they uh, neglected their sacred duties or they did not keep in touch with uh, brahmins and uh, patanjali he says that these people they do not have to be expelled from the dish do not have to be expelled from the dish means that you don't have to throw away the utensils if you have food with them you know otherwise that untouchability thing is not there they don't have to be expelled from the dish so this is a phenomena which you can study in the ancient texts and i was pleasantly surprised to note al-biruni discussing this at great length and he himself writes that you know they had such a open attitude and they were very willing to learn from anyone and he mentions the astronomer varamira he was from out he came from a family outside india they are supposed to have come from iran but he was given such an exalted place in the society and al-biruni says that is because they did not neglect people who had knowledge so he says when did this attitude change when did they start because they were accepting people from outside when did this attitude change and al-biruni says that it changed forever because of the traumatic experience that they had at the hands of the turks and he says he himself write that after the invasions of mahmud ghaznavi hindus became like atoms of dust scattered in all directions and they retreated retreated to remote areas where our arms could not reach them so this is his uh, there is one more project that i'm hopefully going to work on and that i think would also interest your uh, 
do i have time or is it over uh, please go ahead ma'am yeah uh, this is that you know we have discussed so much about india under foreign rule whether it's arab uh, uh, arab rule turkic rule or british rule the point is that how did hindu society survive and i realized that they did not go to the state institutions for redressal or for any requirement that means that under the rule of an islamic state or the british state the hindus had no interaction interaction except when they were forced to pay the revenue that means their system of education their system of justice their judiciary everything operated outside the state so this is what i hope to study sometime thank you very much ma'am now i'd like to start the q and a session i request all the other panelists to switch on their videos i would like to ask meenakshi ji two questions and after that you know it's uh, free for all they could also ask questions i would also like at some point to read out the uh, questions uh, from the other participants as well uh, my first question to uh, meenakshi ji is a little personal um, i was recently uh, reading yes. uh this book by girilal jain ji this was actually edited by meenakshi ji and this was uh, published by her in 1994 mm-hmm. and i wanted to go back and see what were girilal jain uh, ji's uh, words about the ayodhya movement mm-hmm. and i'd like to read uh, uh, from it just a small paragraph so the chapter is uh, titled ayodhya a historical watershed it says 1992 will doubtless go down in indian history as the year of ayodhya this is not so much because of recent events uh, you know they have pushed into the background all the other issues such as economic reforms and reservations for the other backward castes as because they have released yeah this is the most important thing they have released forces which will have a decisive influence in shaping the future of india so i i was wondering you know how well he has foreseen what was going to happen you know 30 40 I, years <laughs> i think it was just my uh, good fortune and destiny that uh, the ram movement was the last uh, major cause that my father took up and uh, though he was he got a lot of popular uh, support but he was ostracized by uh, you know his former colleagues and Uh, the profession also and i i thought it was uh, you know his blessing that i took up this work on ayodhya and i wrote uh, two books which were widely acclaimed and i really regard this you know as uh, ram's blessing and my father's blessing because this was a cause for which he really suffered in the last years of his life and i am really blessed that i was able to you know continue with that cause and that i have been blessed to witness the bhumi poojan that is the biggest <laughs> blessing i know now you yourself have been a rebel and you continue to be a rebel among the historians mm-hmm. and in fact uh, i think before you published this book uh, you had only one book and it was on politics no at that time yes, i think yes. you wrote you written a book on congress, congress party yes yes yeah and the caste in, politics yeah in the context of mandal and all that Yes, yes, yeah. and and uh, no, I um, 
you know, I, of course, I mean, growing up, you know, you must be among the greats, you know, with whom your father was, yes. Ram Sarupji, yes. Sitaram Goelji, yeah. and Actually, all these others. Actually, uh, uh, my father, Sitaramji and Ram Sarup, they were together from first year of college. Oh. They went to college together. And then oh. both of them were part of our family. So we used to meet all the time. I see. Okay. Now it clearly shows something. Even your sister, uh, I think Sandhya yeah. Jain Ji, you know, also writes quite a bit, you know, in this yeah. uh, area. And yeah. in fact, uh, I was just trying to read up some of your older articles, and I found several from the Illustrated Weekly of India, you know, a very long time ago. But yeah. one thing that stood out, it was in 1990, uh, you had written an article, "The Plight of Brahmins." Yes. Now that was a very courageous yes. thing to do, write about, yes. you know, at that point yes. in time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I wrote a lot on uh, Mandal politics at that time, actually. Uh -huh. yeah. And uh, my study showed that, you know, uh, this ground reality was just the opposite of what uh, was being projected. Yeah. And that uh, the dominant castes were being projected as, uh, you know, weaker castes. Yeah. They were not uh, uh, weak in the sense of economic yeah. might, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I wrote against the dominant caste at that time. Yeah, but you know, your initial work uh, was on uh, caste uh, caste politics, yes. and yes. I think yes. some of your work was also published in the anthology of Emman Srinivas's yes. sociology yes. Uh, yes. work yes. Uh, yes. as well. Yes. So yes. you were quite well known in your work uh, in in the sociological you know, side of things. You know, what made you to come into uh, uh, the historical, you know, uh, the civilizational history, you know, uh, side of things. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I had, you know, I'm a slow reader. I mean, I'm a silent worker. So <laughs> I was, uh, you know, reading, reading, reading for ages. And I was really also quite, uh, you know, bewildered that is this reading going to lead to anything? But, you know, <laughs> So I just spent so many years of my life just reading and marking books. And, you know, and somehow suddenly things fell in place. You know, you have to have that. Sometime it happens that you just see that now it's the right time and you just have to get onto it. But uh, all my research, I must say, has been, you know, uh, just the opposite of what the dominant people are saying. So in yes. that sense, you know, I mean, I've never gone with the flow if I look back. I've always taken a stand which is somehow opposite of what the dominant strand is. So I have, in that sense, been a loner researcher. I've not had uh, many people endorsing what I'm uh, doing. And every book of mine, it's been a Herculean task to get it published. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the perils so of sticking to facts and truth, I guess, Pinakshi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to uh, uh, ask some uh, questions, you know, which were asked in the Q and A module. Um, but if are the other panelists have any questions, they could go ahead and go ahead and ask. Okay, so I'll I'll go ahead and ask. So I was reading some of the criticism one from my side. I think we can take off. I'll just ask one question, Minakshi. Sure. sure. Uh, when can we expect your next book? <laughs> I hope by the end of next year. Oh, fantastic. So there's more work for you. One more review to write, uh, Abhishek. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Absolutely. With pleasure. With pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> so, I thought, uh, I, uh, Abhinav had uh, reviewed my book, Ram in Ayodhya, and I had not even uh, known him at that time. And uh, when somebody, you know, sent that review to me, I was so pleasantly surprised that, you know, 
here is a person who's actually had the courage to review my book <laughs> and uh, after that of course i it was a pleasure knowing him and he has been very very helpful in getting my books uh, publicity and doing the reviews okay i was in fact ma'am uh, reading some of the criticism of uh, your works by the left historians and they don't uh, you know they keep you know mentioning that oh you know she's a, a communal you know, uh, yes. you know historian yes. and the reason they give you know uh, for using that label is that you know you refer to um uh, the muslim dynasties as foreigners right so, <laughs> so it's Much very enough. difficult to understand you know yeah. um, how one yes you you have talked about it today as well but there is a question you know which is uh, related to that you know somebody has asked uh, vishwajit kumar you know has mm-hmm. asked a question the temples destroyed by invaders are often given economic and political you know reasons you know as mm-hmm. the reasons for destruction of temples mm-hmm. but nobody talks about uh, the religious reason, reasons you know in these history books um, uh by these muslim invaders uh, in destruction of temples right um what is your you know, opinion on that uh the motivation was always religious we should not try to hide from that fact and uh, mahmud ghaznavi uh he was lauded in the arab world for destroying the temples of india and he was given the title of sultan by the caliph he was the first person to be given the title of sultan for his deeds in india and if you want to disconnect temple destruction from the religion of islam then i would like to ask how do you account for the destruction of the bamiyan buddhas in the 20th century the bamiyan buddhas had no economic clout attached to them there was no wealth attached to them yet they were consciously destroyed because they were a symbol of a civilization which is revering in image worship which they wanted to destroy and just last month in the swat area uh, uh, which were which fell under the control of the taliban they came across a old statue of buddha and it was a real rare piece and there are photographs of them trampling on it and reducing it to pieces so to this is an old leftist argument that the temples were attacked because of the wealth of temples my counter question is when somnath was attacked again and again and again was it an economic motive when aurangzeb was uh, 87 years old when he was 87 years old he sent a message to his officials in somnath at the age of 87 he sent a message to mughal officers in gujarat please check if hindus have revived worship in somnath if they have revived if they revived worship in somnath destroy it in such a way that it is never possible again so at that time was there any economic motive attached to the destruction of somnath for the nth time and at the age of 87 he is passing a farman and that is available to us yeah ma'am there is one more question uh, a quick uh, um, 
which what was the language of administration before akbar changes to persian uh, this See, is a question from abhijit yes uh, the thing is that it was written in both sides the order was given written in both sides it was sometimes in persian sometimes in turkic and and the local language at the back so it was in two parts okay thank you there's a question from uh, sri jv shivakumar uh, ma'am can you please uh, elaborate on impact of dine ilahi uh, on then hindu society and its impact down the lane how did the muslim society itself respond to it this uh, dine ilahi was a non starter uh, it had no impact on hindu society no important mansabdar of akbar joined it and it petered away within a few years raja man singh who was his closest confidant and uh, uh, relative even he did not join it was some kind of fad which did not survive for long at all uh, so there is an anonymous uh, question please can you please uh, mention the name of the french writer on textiles again i think uh, jean baptiste tavernier t a v e r n i e r okay yes um so uh, there are a lot of questions uh, uh, related to school textbooks and you know you contributed uh, to writing uh, the uh, textbooks on medieval india um we have heard that there is a new committee that uh, is being set up or has already been set up um are you on this committee ma'am and are you playing any role in the textbooks that are about to be written <laughs> no i am playing no role i have uh, read in the papers about the new education policy like uh, all of us uh, but i really don't know what is the state of the new textbooks who's writing it who's commissioning it i have no idea okay um can i have a go uh, just one small intervention yeah yeah uh, thank you so much uh, meenakshi ji uh, as always uh, such thank a you <laughs> uh, i just wanted to come back to uh, my favorite topics two two topics one is the legacy partnership that uh, uh, indic academy has started with all the eminent scholars and i request all the people who are listening to please 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 uh, we have a grant specific grant for each scholar we have a, uh, we have given a grant uh, minakshi ji of course uh, has said that please use it for the uh, uh, research scholars so we are going to give this uh, grant for any scholar who wants to work under the tutelage of minakshi ji so please approach us write to us at namaste at indica.org.in and we would be happy to support your research to support minakshi ji's uh, work uh, please think of this as uh, the classical music gharanas so we need to have a minakshi ji garana that uh, we need to create more and more sishas and uh, so i appeal to all of you to please write to us that's the first thing the second thing is uh, remember the flight of deities we have a very interesting project wherein we are asking people to fictionalize these stories uh, in a semi uh, academic manner uh and uh, we have announced uh, avatans our national executive uh, convener for us is leading that it's available on our website so please do uh, reach out to us we need to tell these stories so that these stories can be accessed by the common person 
Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Harikin Garu. I'd also like to make an announcement. Um, uh, Indic Today, uh, so Yogini Deshpandeji, uh, the editor at Indic Today, she has uh, asked me uh, to mention that uh, she would like to publish uh, any articles that are written on the program today. Uh, anybody who uh, writes the about the content of uh, the discussions that have happened today uh, should be glad to publish them. Um, and there could be multiple people contributing to this. And any contributions from uh, students um, and non-professionals would even be compensated. So this is uh, uh, Yogini Deshpande's uh, message. Uh, so Indic today would like to publish on this event. Um, uh, the other panelists, uh, Abhinav, uh, Hari Prasadji, would you like to uh, ask any questions? And while there are a lot of questions, I think around 87 questions uh, that yeah. people have asked, I'm just uh, uh, going through them. I mean, meanwhile, if you could uh, just, uh, uh, I, I want to make sure that you know we're not leaving any important questions from this. No, I don't have any questions. All I'll say is that it's been a privilege and educational experience and eye-opening experience in reading several of her books uh, from Rama and Ayodhya, The Battle for Rama, Sati, Flight of Deities, Parallel Pathways, The India They Saw. And it is, uh, while it has been, uh, you know, an exhilarating experience, it is also sad in many ways because if you read about the plight of, uh, you know, how the, our temples were destroyed, it makes for very sad reading. And what is even sadder is that uh, 70 years after independence, uh, that uh, these things are unknown to a majority of Indians is I think perhaps an even sadder tale that, the, that our temples were destroyed is a tragedy that we don't know much about what happened, I think is a bigger tragedy. Absolutely, I agree with you. It's a real tragedy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ma'am, uh, you know what exactly is going on in campuses like JNU or other university campuses? Means university environment is not uh, means favorable for the kind of academic research you have done or the other scholars wants to do. So, what about the non-university initiative? Means Indicate Academy is on one side. So you are also doing. doing. Yes, you are also doing. I think yeah. that is the. You see, this is exactly the uh, beauty of this situation that other avenues have opened. So now you, by your institutions, will get more audience than a university classroom will get. A university classroom will get 30, 40. Whereas every event that you organize and the lectures that you organize, they're getting 150, 200 people who are coming there to listen, apart from people who watch on video. So I am personally of the opinion that you have a tremendous opportunity to go on organizing these things. Because I feel that now there are no big stalwarts of the stature of the earlier. And the current leftist scholars don't have the courage or the stature to come out openly and take a stand. They will make remarks in their classroom and the books that they write are mainly on economic or other such developments. They're not taking up key issues of culture and civilization. 
that space is actually vacant for us. So I think like Sudesh, you are doing, you are, you've got this academics for the nation, you've organized so many talks, and you're having an active program of training young scholars. So I think that that is the way ahead until the universities are ready to fall on their own, we should bypass them and work on these alternative routes like you have found. Thank you. One, okay. uh, one quick question from me, Srinivasji, if it's okay. Sure, go ahead. Just uh, wanted Meenakshi's opinion on that. Uh, I mean, one theme that comes across in the Flight of DT's book is, obviously, because whenever there was a crisis, Hindus had lost political power. That's when the temples and deities were attacked. So it's the ordinary Hindu, you know, yes. the visitor or the town person, he is involved in the flight of the deity. Yes. You know, maybe because it's his family deity, village deity, whatever is the tradition, hereditary nature. And then when on the other side, when the rebuild of the temple happens, when it is put back, inevitably the name of the ruler, the name of the king comes in. It's a theme across, you know, the 350 pages. Uh, see, the thing is that when the temple, when the image is being removed from there, the people who are involved are naturally the priests and the local devotees. But the because the deity is not a piece of furniture or something they can put lock up and put it in a suitcase and travel with it. The deity has to be worshipped all along the way by certain rituals. So we find local zamindars locally powerful people, local kings, providing sustenance for the deity and the priest in their flight. So, for example, the image of Govindev. The image of Govindev was uh, instated in the temple that Raja Mansingh had built. Govindev, Govindev temple. Now, when Aurangzeb's order of 1669 came, then Govindev also fled along with other deities in Mathura, Braj, Vrindavan area. And they fled to Rajasthan because it was nearest. And it was not a terrain that was, could be easily attacked. So we find that Govindev, the, he is finally instated in a temple in Jaipur in 1739. So from 1669 to 1739, the DT is on the move. He stays in one place for 10 days, another place for three weeks, another place for two days, but he's staying in many different places. So temporary structures are erected on those places. In many places, those temporary structures have survived till today. And the local people have instated new murtis in those structures and continue to worship there. So all along the way, you will find land grants, which are given for the deity, for his stay here. So it is the name of the king comes because the king is the one who finally builds that grand temple. But the journey is a collective journey of the priests and the local people, and they're supported all along the way by local peasants, Landlords, Damindas, whoever you want to call them. In terms the of king, mind, and the king is the one who finally gives the patronage for the big temple. 
So in terms of drawing lessons for today, I mean, there is a huge debate about the role of the ordinary Hindus in managing their temples versus mm. the role of the government. Yeah. I think this history, the lessons make a strong case that we should try to ensure that the attachment of the ordinary Hindu with his temple remains. By and that, absolutely. And that is what kept this society coherent. It did not collapse, even though it did not have political power for a thousand years. It remained a coherent society. This was one of the reasons. Thank you. Yes, Shrinivas Ji. Yeah, thank you very much, ma'am. I think we have short past 20 minutes past the uh, uh, the planned end time. I think probably the lot more questions, probably I'll send an email to you and maybe you yes. can respond and we well, can publish we will, them. We will not, uh, uh, you know, shoot, overshoot the time too much. We just within a few, I think maximum 10 minutes. No, actually, uh, okay. Uh, or maybe we could, as I was proposing, maybe we could end the session now. There are yes. a lot of questions. In fact, I will send them to you. Yes, that will uh, be maybe, better. Uh, maybe, yes. you know, if you could uh, respond to them, maybe... Yogini ji can publish it on Indic today. Yes, that would uh, be better. Of, yeah, that would be better. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to thank you, ma'am. Uh, thank you very much uh, for being with us uh, here today. We didn't have a break. Uh, you know, I hope uh, it wasn't too uncomfortable for you no, to sit no. through almost three no. and a half hours. I and enjoyed actually almost it. four hours. <laughs> I enjoyed it and thank you for the patience and thank <laughs> all the panelists who spared time and asked such intelligent and interesting questions. Yeah. Thank you very much, ma'am. And thank you, uh, Harikiranji, for giving me an opportunity to conduct uh, such wonderful sessions with uh, great uh, people. We have already done three. This is the fourth. I'm really, really happy to have uh, done this. And the recording of this would uh, you know, be available on YouTube and uh, Facebook. And you know, I request everybody to share this as much as possible. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you Meenakshi so ji. Thank, thank, thank you so thank much. You. Please thank send you. the link to me also. Thank you, ma'am. Namaste. Thank you. YouTube link, please send me. Sure, ma'am. Yeah. Thank Namaste. you so much, Indic Academy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.